What a tough start for Pecola, Claudia and Frida, living in such an unforgiving and inhospitable society infused with racism. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of November's book, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, published in 1970. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book. Maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 26th of November. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book. Or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 108, the chapter beginning, See Mother Mother is Very Nice in all capital letters. The novel begins with a foreword. Morrison sets out why she wanted to write the novel. Quote, when I began writing The Bluest Eye, I was interested in the tragic and disabling consequences of accepting rejection as legitimate as self-evident and to enter the life of one of the least likely to withstand such damaging forces because of youth, gender and race. The origin of the novel lay in a conversation I had with a childhood friend. We had just started elementary school. She said she wanted blue eyes. I looked around to picture her with them and was violently repelled by what I imagined she would look like if she had her wish. The sorrow in her voice seemed to call for sympathy, and I faked it for her, but, astonished by the desecration she proposed, I, quote, got mad at her instead. The bluest eye was my effort to say something about that, to say something about why she had not or possibly ever would have the experience of what she possessed and also why she prayed for so radical an alteration. Implicit in her desire was racial self-loathing and 20 years later I was still wondering about how one learns that. Who told her? Who made her feel that it was better to be a freak than what she was? Who had looked at her and found her so wanting, so small a weight on the beauty scale. The novel pecks away at the gaze that condemned her. And then the novelist goes on to question whether she successfully achieved her purpose. Quote, One problem was centering the weight of the novel's inquiry on so delicate and vulnerable a character could smash her and lead readers into the comfort of pitying her rather than into an interrogation of themselves for the smashing. My solution, break the narrative into parts that had to be reassembled by the reader, seemed to me a good idea, the execution of which does not satisfy me now. Besides, it didn't work. Many readers remained touched but not moved. So the opening of the novel, we have a typical five-year-old learning to read book, describing a family, but the family will not play with Jane. The signposts and the language steadily break down, the punctuation and the spaces making it difficult to read. The narrator says no marigolds grow in their garden, perhaps because, quote, Pecola was having her father's baby. It's the 1940s, the baby is dead, and the narrator says, quote, our innocence too. She continues, why is so difficult to handle? One must take refuge in how, and so she goes on to relate the story. Then we have a section called Autumn. The narrator and Frida are sisters. They talk of beating up their white neighbour, Rosemary. Quote, poke the arrogance out of her eyes. 
The narrator is called Claudia. She has a very tough, unsympathetic family home. They scavenge for coal since they live near a coal mine. And we're only at page nine and we, the reader, are confronted by child rape, incest with Peckler, sexual abuse, possibly adult with Rosemary, and a very tough family life, Claudia's parents. A chap called Mr Henry arrives. He is going to be their rumour. And the women discuss why he has left his former landlady. And they are very judgmental. And I'll discuss the idea of how a patriarchal society creates values in women being one, good housewives, two, good Christians, and three, good looking later in more depth. There's no dialogue tags between the friends. It's a nice little technical detail. Claudia and Frida are nine and ten years old. The father is mentioned, so there are four in the family. We've got Claudia, Frida, the mother and the father. Mr Henry arrives. He's funny and adorable. Quote, we loved him. Even after what came later, there was no bitterness in our memory of him. Pecola stays with Claudia and Frida because, quote, that old dog Breedlove had burned up his house, gone upside his wife's head, and everybody, as a result, was outdoors. Outdoors is explained, and it's to be made homeless, on the street. A thing to really fear in this society. Pecola arrives at their house. Claudia explains that she hates dolls. What she really wanted for Christmas was experiences. Quote, I want to sit on the low stool in Big Mama's kitchen with my lap full of lilacs and listen to Big Papa play his violin for me alone. The lowness of the stool made for my body, the security and warmth of Big Mama's kitchen, the smell of the lilacs, the sound of the music, and since it would be good to have all of my senses engaged, the taste of a peach, perhaps afterwards. Her hatred of dolls is transferred onto, quote, little white girls. Quote, if I pinched them, their eyes, unlike the crazed glint of the baby doll's eyes, would fold in pain and their cry would not be the sound of an icebox door, but a fascinating cry of pain. When I learned how repulsive this disinterested violence was, that it was repulsive because it was disinterested, my shame floundered about for refuge. The best hiding place was love. Thus the conversion from pristine sadism to fabricated hatred to fraudulent love. It was a small step to Shirley Temple. I learned much later to worship her, just as I learned to delight in cleanliness, knowing even as I learned that the change was adjustment without improvement. Her mother complains indirectly that Pecola has drunken all the milk, and Claudia, the narrator, talks of her mother's beautiful singing voice. Pecla has her first period and they try to help her and hide it from her mother and Rosemary, the next door neighbour, says they're, quote, playing nasty to the mother and the girls are reprimanded and their mama forgives them when she sees what has happened they lie in bed and Claudia thinks quote, she was different from us now, grown up like she herself felt the distance but refused to lord it over us. After a long while, she spoke very softly. Is it true that I can have a baby now? Sure, said Frida's Rousley. Sure you can. But how? Her voice was hollow with wonder. Oh, said Frida, somebody has to love you. She goes on. Then Peckla asked a question that had never entered my mind. How do you do that? I mean, how do you get somebody to love you? But Frida was asleep and I didn't know. There's an abandoned store in town where the breed loves used to live. And we go back in time. So Trolley Breedlove, that's Peckler's father, buys a sofa, but it has a split in the back and the store refuses to exchange it. And the narrator asserts that, quote, a hated piece of furniture produces a fretful malaise that asserts itself throughout the house and limits the delight of things not related to it. They live in the storefront because, quote, 
They were poor and black, and they stayed there because they believed they were ugly. Although their poverty was traditional and stultifying, it was not unique, but their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly, except for the father, Cholly, whose ugliness, the result of despair, dissipation and violence directed toward petty things and weak people, was behaviour. The rest of the family, Mrs Breedlove, Sammy Breedlove and Peckler Breedlove, wore their ugliness, put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. Society has imposed this ugliness, quote, from every billboard, movie and glance, and they hide behind it in different ways. Quote, they took the ugliness in their hands, threw it as a mantle over them and went about the world with it, dealing with it each according to his way. Mrs Breedlove handled hers as an actor does a prop for the articulation of character, for support of a role she frequently imagined was hers, martyrdom. Sammy used his as a weapon to cause others pain. He adjusted his behaviour to it, chose his companions on the basis of it, people who could be fascinated, even intimidated by it. And Pecola, she hid behind hers, concealed, veiled, eclipsed, peeping out from behind the shroud very seldom, and then only to yearn for the return of her mask. Trolley Breedlove is an alcoholic, and Mama and he have big fights. They, quote, fought each other with a darkly brutal formalism that was paralleled only by their lovemaking. Pecola tries to disappear, but she's always left with her eyes. She wishes she had beautiful blue eyes. Quote, it had occurred to Pecola some time ago that if her eyes, those eyes that held the pictures and knew the sights, if those eyes of hers were different, that is to say, beautiful, she herself would be different. They'd say, why? Look at pretty-eyed Pecola. We mustn't do bad things in front of those pretty eyes. She compares herself to dandelion weeds, which she considers beautiful, and cracks in the sidewalk. Quote, these and other inanimate things she saw and experienced, they were real to her. She knew them. They were the codes and touchstones of the world, capable of translation and possession. She owned the crack that made her stumble. She owned the clumps of dandelions whose white heads last fall she had blown away, whose yellow heads this fall she peered into, and owning them made her part of the world, and the world a part of her. She goes to the grocer, and he is rude to Pecola. Then, quote, Outside, Pecola feels the inexplicable shame ebb. Dandelions. A dart of affection leaps out from her to them, but they do not look at her and do not send love back. She thinks they're ugly, they're weeds. Preoccupied with that revelation, she trips on the sidewalk crack. Anger stirs and wakes in her. It opens its mouth and, like a hot-mouthed puppy, laps up the dredges of her shame. She has bought some Mary Janes. And they're sweets. Quote, Each pale yellow wrapper has a picture on it. A picture of little Mary Jane, for whom the candy is named. Smiling white face. Blonde hair in gentle disarray. Blue eyes looking at her out of a world of clean comfort. The eyes are petulant, mischievous. To Beckler, they're simply pretty. She eats the candy and its sweetness is good. To eat the candy is somehow to eat the eyes. Eat Mary Jane. Love Mary Jane. Be Mary Jane. Peckler is friends with three prostitutes who live above their flat. They're tender and kind to her. And they chat and Peckler thinks about what love between two people is. We then move into winter and we move back to the present. Claudia's father is compared to an ice cliff. There's a new girl who arrives at school, Maureen Peel, quote, as rich as the richest of the white girls. Claudia is very jealous of her. And does her name suggest there's something below the surface, about to be maybe peeled away? Maureen one day asked to walk part way home with the sisters. 
Quote, Frida and I exchanged glances, her eyes begging my restraint, mine promising nothing. It was a false spring day, which, like Maureen, had pierced the shell of a deadening winter. What a lovely touch. Claudia is desperate to be abusive, and Maureen is also like a, quote, false spring day. I think it will be revealed that she's not what appears on the surface of the girls. They pass Peckler being bullied by a group of black boys. Quote, they had extemporised a verse made up of two insults about matters over which the victim had no control, the colour of her skin and speculations on the steeping habits of an adult, wildly fitting in its incoherence. That they themselves were black or that their own father had similarly relaxed habits was irrelevant. It was their contempt for their own blackness that gave the first insult its teeth. They seemed to have taken all of their smoothly cultivated ignorance, their exquisitely learned self-hatred, their elaborately designed hopelessness and sucked it all up into a fiery cone of scorn that burned for ages in the hollows of their minds, cooled and spilled over lips of outrage, consuming whatever was in its path. They danced a macabre ballet around the victim, whom, for their own sake, they were prepared to sacrifice to the flaming pit. Wow, what a fantastic description of projective identity, projecting self-hatred onto another. There's a clear path from the Shirley Temple image at the beginning of the novel, the white doll as well, where the only value in the society is white to this. Frida, the younger sister, stands up to the bullies, and I'm thinking, go Frida, this is fantastic you're doing this. And Maureen is actually quite nice and takes Peckola under her wing. And I'm thinking at this stage, I knew she was good. Peel back that outward image and she has a heart of gold. However, I think that changes slightly. Maureen buys her an ice cream. And then they end up fighting with Maureen because she makes them, quote, feel the shame brought on by the absence of shame when discussing if they had seen a naked man or not. Continuing the narrative, Claudia and Frida feel, quote, lesser Listen to this, quote, All the time we knew that Maureen Peel was not the enemy and not worthy of such intense hatred. The thing to fear was the thing that made her beautiful and not us. And this is a very mature response when they're only young teenagers. Claudia sees Mr Henry with two prostitutes when coming back from the sweet shop and one is China, Peckler's friend, and the other is called Maginoline, possibly Miss Marie or Poland, and we actually find out later that this is Miss Marie. The narrator describes, quote, thin brown girls who are tall, narrow and still, and they are a generalised type of person. Quote, such girls have bought watermelon and snap beans from the fruit man's wagon. They go to land, grant, colleges, normal schools and learn how to do the white man's work with refinement, home economics to prepare his food, teacher education to instruct black children in obedience, music to soothe the wary master and entertain his blunted soul. She goes on. Certain men watch them without seeming to and know that if such a girl is in his house, he will sleep on sheets boiled white, hung out to dry on juniper bushes and pressed flat with a heavy iron. There'll be pretty paper flowers decorating the picture of his mother, a large Bible in the front room. They feel secure. They know their work clothes will be mended, washed and ironed on Monday, that their Sunday shirts will billow on hangers from the door jam, stiffly starched and white. One such person is called Geraldine, and she has a son called Louis Jr. and a husband called Louis. The narrator exposes Geraldine's racism or elitism towards certain groups of black people who are respectable and some who are not. She uses very offensive and racist language. One day, Junior invites Peckler to his house to see, quote, kittens, only to throw a cat in her face and then injure it. 
Geraldine comes in and Junior blames Peckler for the injured cat. And Geraldine looks at Peckler and her prejudiced classism is exposed. Quote, people like Peckler were everywhere. They slept six in a bed, all their pee mixing together in the night as they wet their beds, each in his own candy and potato chip dream. In the long, hot days, they idled away, picking plaster from the walls and digging into the earth with sticks. They sat in little rows on street curbs, crowded into pews at church, taking space from the nice, neat, coloured children. They clowned on the playgrounds, broke things in dime stores, ran in front of you on the street, made ice slides on the slope sidewalks in winter. The girls grew up knowing nothing of girdles, and the boys announced their manhood by turning the bills of their caps backward. Grass wouldn't grow where they lived. Flowers died. Shades fell down. Tin cans and tyres blossomed where they lived. They lived on cold black-eyed peas and orange pop. Like flies they hovered. Like flies they settled. And this one has settled in her house. Up over the hump of the cat's back she looked. Get out, she said, her voice quiet. Get out of my house. Then we move into spring. Claudia finds Frida crying. Her dad beats up Mr Henry because he touched her breasts. Frida is worried she may be, quote, ruined. The girls think that this means fat, and in their ignorance they believe alcohol may stop Frida from getting fat or, quote, ruined. And here we have the idea of ignorance, and more on that later. So they go to Peckler to find her father's alcohol, and they see Maginot line. And she tells her that Peckler is at Mama's employer. Claudia says to Maginot Line, quote, my mama say you ruined. And Maginot Line hurls a bottle at the girls. They try to find Peckler at the Lakeshore home where mama works. And they do find Peckler. She confirms, quote, the Maginot Line is Miss Marie. The girls accidentally spill hot blueberries all over the floor and are scolded by their mother and told to leave. And that brings us to halfway through the book. And there are some very interesting questions that need to be answered. First of all, what will happen to Mr Henry to cause him to fall into disrepute with the girls? What will happen to Peckola? What will happen to her baby? What will happen to Frida and Claudia? What will drive Cholly Breedlove to commit the crime? And how will he die? And will Claudia and Frida hunt for alcohol have any serious ramifications further down the novel? There's some very, very interesting ideas all the way through this first half. The idea of childish magic appears at the very opening. The marigolds not growing. Quote, Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Peckler was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. So deeply concerned were we with the health and safe delivery of Peckler's baby, we could think of nothing but our own magic. If we planted the seeds and said the right words over them, they would blossom and everything would be all right. Unfortunately, the soil is a metaphor for society. Claudia, Peckler and Frieda are beautiful seeds planted in a soil that just won't allow them to flourish. And then there's another interesting idea, the value of females. When they talk of Della... Quote, she always did keep a good house. She was a good church woman. These were the women talking. She's not a, quote, heifer like Peggy from Illyria. They're judging more than the men. And this is patriarchy's fault, perhaps. Women are debating the value of other women, whether they're a good housewife, whether they're good Christians, whether they're good to look at. 
Women in the novel use patriarchal, degrading language. Mrs. Breedlove says, quote, cold as a witch's tit, giving that imagery of the crone as barren and not life-giving. And then the child of Mrs. Breedlove's boss calls her Polly. This is a young child. Quote, where's Polly, she asks, and this is the child. The familiar violence rose in me, this is Claudia, her calling Mrs. Breedlove Polly, when even Peckler called her mother Mrs. Breedlove, seemed reason enough to scratch her. And then we have these white icons. We've got the Dick and Jane book at the very beginning, which is describing a typical white family, it sounds like. And then we have the white doll given for Christmas and she wants to maim it. And we've got the Shirley Temple imagery, again, she wants to maim. We have all these white icons. And we've also got this idea of the cloak of ugliness. In class, this is Peckler speaking, quote, As long as she looked the way she did, as long as she was ugly, she would have to stay with these people. Somehow she belonged to them. Long hours she sat looking in the mirror, trying to discover the secret of the ugliness, the ugliness that made her ignored or despised at school by teachers and classmates alike. She was the only member of her class who sat alone at a double desk. The first letter of her last name forced her to sit in the front of the room always. I also think that the language is quite interesting. She uses very academic language. She uses Freudian language of displacement, anxiety. For example, quote, when she's talking about the prostitutes, neither were they sloppy, inadequate whores who, unable to make a living at it alone, turned to drug consumption or, and traffic or pimps to help complete their scheme of self-destruction, avoiding suicide only to punish the memory of some absent father or to sustain the misery of some silent mother. There is some casual racist language that seems to have been normalised, which I thought was shocking. When describing Maureen Peel, there's the quote, a high yellow dream child with long brown hair braided into two lynch ropes that hung down her back. Almost unnoticed, it's kind of normalised language. And we also have the idea of ignorance. The two girls' experience of adult words like ruined make them make ignorant assumptions after Frida was touched by Mr Henry. What interesting ideas did you find in that first half? I would love to know your thoughts. I'd like to talk a little bit now about last month's book 2666 by Roberta Balagno. There were some wonderful comments on Goodreads and I had some lovely emails as well. Brian on Goodreads said, quote, I love these big sprawling novels that can't be reduced to a single theme or even a few themes. 2666 is shot through with so many goddamn ideas, so all over the place, sloppy and strange with temporal and geographical shifts, recurring images and motifs, characters and names, and just the furthest thing from any kind of recognisable or coherent epic. Bolaño is not pushing the snowball down the hill, watching it gain in mass and volume. He's drunkenly tossed a million little snowballs down there, and yeah, some are substantive and gain in size, get bigger as they go, but others flatten out and disappear or pop into snow dust as they run against trees and rocks. Stephen said... Quote, a stunning work that eclipses anything else I have read of this size. 2666 isn't perfect, but its strengths far outweigh its weaknesses. To leave me completely in awe of his achievement of injecting new life into the epic novel, dazzling the literary world to show just what is possible. And JD on Goodreads said, five brilliant genius stars. Nothing I write will do this book any justice. I wish I had the time to write a deep thought-provoking essay on this modern masterpiece, but instead I will write a few words about how I felt about this book and how greatly it impacted me. 
This book hurt my brain and touched my heart. It was magical, frightening, beautiful, harrowing, shocking, mesmerizing, and exceptional. At times, this book entered my dreams at night, and I pondered about it during the day. It was as if the language and story swirled through my blood and went into my bone marrow. I reflected on the world of the book, and more broadly, at the world at large. I sometimes would avoid reading it out of fear, and other times for confirmation of the organized chaos that is life. Stories swirled within stories, connections between people, places and time were multidimensional and random, but then not random. Language was seductive, frightening, enigmatic and cruel. I felt my life view validated and then at the same time refuted, often within the span of a few paragraphs. This book tore me apart, but then thankfully reconfigured me, sometimes for the better and sometimes not. The book was gritty and mundane and then would swiftly become profound and wise so that I did not know where I stood within myself, my beliefs, art and the world. This book challenged me and then devoured me and at the same time helped me understand both my mortality and my divinity. This book helped me tap into some of my inner wisdom but took away some of the light. What is this book about? Underneath a veneer of nobility lies a whole lot of animal and a whole lot of evil and despite this a whole lot of beauty. Unbelievable read but I don't know if I could do it again. Rest in peace, Mr. Bolaño. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of The Bluest Eye in two weeks, that's the 26th of November... December's podcast will be all about Dune by Frank Herbert. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of The Bluest Eye in two weeks. See you then. Mm-hmm.